This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. On the night of February 16th, 2002, Kenya Cook was changing her six-month-old daughter's diaper at home in Tacoma, Washington. The 20-year-old was the assistant manager of a retail store and, at the time, was living with her aunt. When someone knocked on the front door that evening, Kenya stopped what she was doing and walked over to open it. The moment she did, a 45 caliber bullet hit her in the face, killing the young mother instantly. The shooter disappeared into the night. Kenya's aunt made the gruesome discovery when she returned home later that night. Her niece had just left an abusive relationship and had only been living with her for a short time. While her former boyfriend was the most obvious suspect in her murder, there was nothing linking him to the crime. Also, investigators were confident that it was not a robbery attempt, as nothing was stolen from the home. Investigators were at a loss for answers. A month later, on March 19th, 60-year-old Jerry Ray Tyler was practicing his swing at a golf course in Tucson, Arizona. Without warning, the father of three and grandfather of five was killed by a single gunshot to the chest. The bullet that struck him was fired from a considerable distance. When the crime scene was searched, no bullet or shell casing could be found anywhere. As with the murder of Kenya Cook, authorities had nothing to go on. In late May, a 37-year-old man outside the city of Denton, Texas, was shot dead while doing yard work. Over the next few months, another person was gunned down and four more were injured in shootings across the country. All of the incidents were determined to be random attacks, with no suspects and no motive. For investigators, this is the worst-case scenario when it comes to solving homicide cases. What authorities could not have anticipated was that the worst was yet to come. Before the year was over, the string of random shootings across the U.S. would intensify in frequency, causing widespread panic. Over a three-week period alone, Residents of Maryland and Washington, D.C. were terrified to leave their home. As the body count continued to rise with still no suspect, law enforcement found themselves in a race against time. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. On August 1st, 2002, 51-year-old John Gaeta from Hammond, Louisiana, was walking to his car when he noticed that one of his tires was flat. For some reason, someone had clearly punctured the tire with a knife. Maybe it was just kids causing trouble. Either way, there wasn't much he could do except change it. Before John could do anything, though, he was hit hard by something. It happened so fast that it took a moment for him to realize that a bullet had traveled through his neck. 
Incredibly, John was still alive. Even more amazing, he had the presence of mind to just lie down and play dead. A few seconds later, he heard someone running over to him. Heart pounding and doing his best to remain as still as possible, the person knelt down, took his wallet, and ran off. Bleeding and terrified, John didn't move until he was absolutely positive the assailant had left. He ran to a nearby gas station, where the attendant called the authorities. John survived, but he had no idea who shot him, or why. Just over a month later, on September 5th, 55-year-old Paula Rufa, from Clinton, Maryland, was locking up his restaurant after a long day. It was 10.30 p.m., and he was looking forward to getting home. Without warning, Paul was shot six times at close range. He survived the attack, but like John Gaeta, he had no clue why anyone would target him. Just over a week later, and roughly 30 miles away in Silver Spring, Maryland, a 22-year-old was also thankful to be alive. The man was standing outside the store where he worked when he was shot in the back. The following day, a 32-year-old man in Brandywine, Maryland, was shot and wounded while closing up the store where he worked. Less than a week later, a 41-year-old man was killed in Atlanta, Georgia, when he was shot in the head and back with a 22 caliber pistol. The same day, a 52-year-old woman was killed and her 24-year-old co-worker injured while at work in Montgomery, Alabama. An armed robber had burst into the store and immediately shot them. The brutal and random series of attacks continued. Two days later, on September 23rd, a 45-year-old beauty supply store manager in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was heading home for the night. As the mother of three was getting into her car, she was shot in the head and died instantly. At the murder scene, forensic investigators recovered a bullet from a 22 caliber Bushmaster rifle. It was an important clue, but there was nothing there to indicate who the killer was. Ten days after the murder in Louisiana, Ann Chapman was at her job at a craft store in Aspen Hill, Maryland. The quiet afternoon was shattered when a bullet came flying through the store's window, narrowly missing Anne. It was initially assumed to be a stray bullet. After all, who would intentionally attack a craft and hobby store? Thankfully, there were no injuries, and the only damage was to the window. For this reason, police were not immediately contacted. But only an hour later, someone else would not be so lucky. Ten minutes away in the town of Wheaton, 55-year-old James Martin was doing groceries for his church youth group. James lived in nearby Silver Spring and worked as a program analyst for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Outside of work, the veteran, husband, and father volunteered at his son's elementary school. He was also a Boy Scout leader and a trustee at his church. James was standing in the grocery store's parking lot when he was shot and killed. The next day brought even more senseless attacks across Montgomery County, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. By the time the day was over, 
five more random people were shot dead. Early in the morning on October 3rd, landscaper James Buchanan, known as Sonny to his friends and family, was busy mowing the lawn at a business complex near Rockville, Maryland. He had graduated from the University of Maryland with a degree in business law and had recently taken over a lawn design company. Sonny also volunteered with a local boys and girls club. That morning, while on his mower, he was struck by a bullet and died at the scene. Half an hour later, at just after 8 a.m., a 54-year-old taxi driver was filling up at a gas station in Aspen Hill. The man was retired and only worked part-time for some extra income. While standing at the gas pump, the father of two was hit by a bullet. He walked over to a nearby car, asked for help, and then collapsed to the ground. He died shortly after. Less than 30 minutes later, and just two and a half miles away, 34-year-old Sarah Ramos had exited the bus and was sitting on a bench reading a book. It was part of her routine and was one of life's little enjoyments for the hard-working mother of one. She was immersed in her reading when a shot rang out, ending her life. It wasn't even 9 a.m. yet, and already that day, three unrelated people had been gunned down by an invisible shooter. And it wasn't over. At just before 10 a.m., and less than six and a half miles away in Kensington, a 25-year-old woman was vacuuming her car at a gas station. The machines were located at the back of the station, which is where her body was later found. Like the others, she had been shot by an unknown assailant. Maryland law enforcement was left in shock with the unprecedented series of random shootings that morning. Sadly, before the day was over, there would be another. That evening, around 9.20 p.m., a 72-year-old retired carpenter named Pascal Charlo was walking to the bus station in the Tacoma neighborhood of Washington, D.C. He was known to be proud of his house and was always happy to provide handyman services to his neighbors free of charge. As Pascal waited to cross the street, he was shot. The husband and father of five was rushed to the hospital, where he died within the hour. As investigators worked to establish the chronology of events, they quickly realized that many of the victims and survivors had been shot by a single bullet. It also appeared that the victims were shot from a considerable distance at least far enough away for the shooter to make a quick getaway. Throughout Washington, D.C. and Montgomery County, Maryland, residents were, understandably, terrified. When police announced that all county schools were keeping students indoors, parents were not all that comforted. In front of school buildings all over the area, traffic jams became a daily occurrence as parents refused to have their kids walk or catch the bus. Despite the wave of random shootings, police in the affected areas still didn't have much to go on. Based on the bullet recovered at the murder scene in Louisiana, investigators believed that all the victims had been killed with a 22 caliber rifle. 
there was another possible lead as well. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Shortly after the mid-September shooting near Rockville, a report came in saying that a white box truck was seen in the vicinity. Following Pascal Charlo's killing in Washington, D.C., however, tips began coming in of a blue Chevrolet Caprice as the potential suspect vehicle. The next day, everyone was wondering if the shooting spree had finally ended. Before the day was over, they would have their answer. That afternoon, 43-year-old Caroline Sewell was visiting a store in Virginia, about an hour outside of Washington. As the homemaker and mother of two was putting her bags into the car, she was shot in the back. Fortunately, Caroline survived. Later that day, authorities were able to link the ballistic evidence to the shootings from the previous two days. Police were now confident they were looking for the same person. Several days passed with a sense of cautious optimism that perhaps the wave of random killings was finally over. On the morning of October 7th, a 13-year-old in Bowie, Maryland, was on his way to school when he was kicked off the bus for eating. His aunt picked him up and drove him the rest of the way. When the teenager got out of the car at just after 8 a.m., he was immediately struck in the chest with a bullet. His aunt pulled him back into the car and rushed to the hospital. He was critically wounded, but would eventually recover. As investigators searched the area for evidence, they found a shell casing near the school. Not only that, but they also found something else. A tarot card. According to reports, it was the death card. On the front was a message that read, Call me God. On the back, someone had written, For you, Mr. Police, do not release to the press. The new evidence was a huge break in the case, and authorities wanted to keep it confidential. So they were understandably upset when major media outlets, including the Washington Post, published the details on their front page. When you have no idea who the guy is, and there's millions of people to choose from, Keeping something secret doesn't do you much good because you'll never have anybody to prosecute anyway. So it's far better to go public with a piece of information so that the public can, you know, say, turn around and say, oh, wait a minute, I know who owns those shoes. Wait a minute, I know who owns that knife. In this particular case, for example, with the, the tarot card, they didn't want to go public and still have not shown it. Uh, if this is connected to the crime, this is the, the best piece of information they have so far that would, you know, separate him from the crowd. News coverage of the shootings was non-stop, 
as reporters from across the country converged on the various crime scenes. Any traction investigators felt they may have had was slipping away. And things were about to get worse. On the evening of that same day, a 53-year-old man was filling up his car at a gas station near Manassas, Virginia. Dean Myers was a civil engineer and had a passion for vintage cars. During his military service, he'd been awarded the distinguished Purple Heart. Dean Myers was shot in the head as he stood beside his car. He died instantly. In the meantime, Baltimore police were conducting license plate checks when they came across a dark blue Chevrolet Caprice parked near the expressway. When officers ran the plate, they found the vehicle was registered in New Jersey. However, when they woke up the man sleeping inside the car, he handed them a license for Washington State. Something did not seem right, especially considering the vehicle matched the description of the one seen in the vicinity of several of the shootings. Despite the red flags, police did not search the vehicle and left after asking the vehicle's owner just a few questions. Two days later, on October 11th, another 53-year-old man was filling up at a gas station near Fredericksburg, Virginia. At just after 9 a.m., the married father of six was gunned down while standing at the pump. By now, gas station owners across the area were implementing protective measures for their customers. If the killer thought gas station patrons were an easy target, then businesses would make it that much more difficult. So, many stations began throwing up tarps to conceal people as they filled up their cars. Hotlines were overwhelmed with tips from witnesses providing all kinds of information. Much of it was conflicting and unreliable, which only increased the work for investigators. Unfortunately, this meant that meaningful tips became lost in the sheer volume of information pouring in. Authorities had been working tirelessly to find the shooter, but they were about to be motivated even further. On the evening of October 14th, 47-year-old Linda Franklin was out doing some shopping in Fairfax County, Virginia. Linda was an intelligence analyst with the FBI and had previously been a teacher in South America, Europe, and Asia. She was a breast cancer survivor and the mother of two grown children, she was looking forward to meeting her first grandchild. Linda was shot in the head as she loaded packages into her car. What's your emergency? The next day, a dispatcher in Rockville, Maryland, received a bizarre and frightening phone call. The person on the other end did all the talking. Don't say anything. Just listen. We're the people who are causing the killings in your area. Look on the tarot card. It says, Call me God. Do not release to the press. We've called you three times before trying to set up negotiations. We've gotten no response. People have died. During the call, the unknown person suggested that investigators should re-examine the robbery-turned-murder scene in Alabama four weeks earlier. The caller then hung up. 
Three days after Linda's murder, on October 17th, a fingerprint was found on a magazine dropped at the robbery scene in Alabama. The print turned out to be a major breakthrough in the case because it would finally provide authorities with a name. The evidence might have been missed had it not been for the anonymous caller claiming to be the shooter. It seemed the shooter wanted some credit for the chaos and carnage they created. With the information provided during the phone call, along with the discovery of the fingerprint, for the first time, authorities realized they potentially had not just one, but two suspects. It was clear that the shooter was operating in a team. It was solid intelligence in an otherwise frustrating investigation. But it was far from over. Two days later, on October 19th, a 37-year-old man was in the parking lot of a restaurant in Ashland, Virginia, when he was suddenly hit by a bullet. The shot came from the direction of a wooded tree line behind the restaurant, but no one saw the shooter. His wife, who was standing next to him, was uninjured. Her quick response helped save his life. The next day, a tip was called in by a person using a voice disguising device. The anonymous caller stated that a note could be found near the restaurant parking lot. As authorities searched the woods near the restaurant, which was about 90 miles south of Washington, D.C., they found a four-page handwritten letter sealed in plastic. It had been taped to a tree and appeared to be from the suspects. It said, Your children are not safe anywhere at any time and demanded $10 million if they wanted the killing to stop. Not long after, police in Richmond, Virginia, were excited when they thought the suspects had been found. On October 21st, police traced a call to a payphone at a gas station in Glen Allen, Virginia. Two men were arrested outside the service station, and one even had a white van. It was looking promising, but when the men were found to have no connection to the killings, it was disappointing, to say the least. Early the following day, back in Aspen Hill, Maryland, 35-year-old married father of two, Conrad Johnson, was standing on the steps of his bus. CJ, as he preferred to be called, had been a bus driver for 10 years. He loved to cook and was a basketball coach at the Boys and Girls Club. At just before 6 a.m., CJ was shot and later died at the hospital from his injuries. Another note was found near the crime scene. The day after the shooting, police received reports of a white box truck in the area at the time. Maryland police started pulling over every white van and every white truck they saw. In the meantime, authorities were getting closer to confirming the identity of one of the killers. Following a tip from a person who thought his neighbor could be involved, investigators headed across the country to Washington State. While the property in Tacoma, Washington was being searched, authorities noticed a tree stump in the backyard looked like it had been used for target practice. A lot of target practice. During this time, the anonymous calls to the police hotline continued. Detectives were sure it was the shooter, but they were never able to speak to him directly. In the past several days, you have attempted to communicate with us 
we have researched the option you stated and found that it is not possible electronically to comply in the manner that you requested. However, we remain open and ready to talk to you about the options you have mentioned. It is important that we do this without anyone else getting hurt. Call us at the same number you used before to obtain the 800 number that you have requested. If you would feel more comfortable, a private post office box or another secure method can be provided. You indicated that this is about more than violence. We are waiting to hear from you. By now, you couldn't turn on the television or open a newspaper without constant media coverage of the shootings. The public and the media were gripped with panic as speculation gained traction that the attacks were being committed by terrorists. It had been, after all, only one year since the 9-11 attacks. With no arrests and a growing list of casualties, the public's heightened fear of being in open spaces, not surprisingly, was profound. Parking lots, gas stations, and schools were virtually deserted. Parents were so terrified that most kept their kids at home. Everyone was on the lookout for white vans and box trucks. People aren't coming out as much. If you notice the streets, you're not getting the traffic on the streets now. As soon as people, as soon as people get home from work, they stay in. They're not going out. Even the restaurants are. There's nobody in the restaurants. Very apprehensive about staying in one place, and they're just very, really concerned as to what's happening right now. The whole country, especially residents of Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., was on edge, not knowing when, or if, the shooting spree would stop. No one knew how many more would lose their lives before the killer, or killers, were finally apprehended. The massive manhunt continues, but police admit they don't know who or what they're dealing with, or what their motive might be. Make sure you're following True wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to hear the incredible conclusion in next week's episode. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. 
As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Go your own way. Go your own way. Leave behind everything you fear. Turn and face the sun. Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.